So, okay. If we, we open to Genesis chapter 42. And uh, if we all stand for the reading of God's word, just one verse tonight, verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land of Egypt. He was prime minister in Egypt. And it was he who sold the grain, that is, that he had arranged to be stored up in preparation to survive the famine. It was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Okay, what I I wanted to draw from uh, this verse tonight in verse 6 regarding Joseph being the governor or prime minister, the leader in Egypt. And I I could have taken this, this lesson here from... Uh, many of the texts in the life of Joseph because it is so consistent. But that is the matter of the the Christian in in normal secular life in the workplace. Um, In this instance, we see in Joseph the Christian in in politics. Uh, We have here a a Christian who is in a very prominent position as leader of a country. Now, what drew me to this uh, truth initially is I I see a lot, especially back home, of a a, a discontinuity, uh, that is, gaps in a Christian's life uh, regarding this. Uh, Let me give you a few examples of what I'm talking about. How many times do you see Christians complain about politics and political decisions. Of course, never happens here. But but how many times do you see this? Uh, Christians do that, who not only do not get involved in politics, and that may not be their calling, that's fine, but they are almost against and despise any Christian for doing so. I mean... Do you not think it's absurd that many uh, that Christians, as Christians, we want our countries uh, and politicians to make godly decisions, and yet there are just so few Christians involved in politics today? You see, the, there's a disconnect there to me. There's a discontinuity. Now, let me give you another example. How many times do you hear of Christians complaining about the state of schools? and what is being taught there, and so forth. And yet, there are so few Christians willing to become teachers or work there, and and have an influence in those places. You see, both of those are really a a form of hyper-Calvinism, a a denial of responsibility. But, you see, we can see here, in the life of Joseph, that a Christian can be very, extremely prominent in the secular workplace. And a Christian can do great things there for the glory of God. I mean, let me give you another example, though, of this type of uh, disconnect. It's quite common, at least, again, where I live, for Christians who 
grow up in Christian families to have no vision for a career or what they want to do in the future. Now, if, you know, of course, in the non-Christian world, uh, they have the same problem too. Many lost children from godless families leave school with no idea what they want to do. Uh, and, you know, and that happens as normal for many innocent reasons. But what I'm talking about here is when the reason a child who grows up in a Christian family grows up with no vision about what they want to do in the future, the reason comes from a premise of faulty theology. You see, what has happened is they have a list of jobs in their mind which they think are the spiritual ones and the worthwhile, like being a pastor or being a missionary. But normal day-to-day jobs in secular life, they either consciously or subconsciously think as worthless. You see, they think of being a pastor or a missionary uh, and jobs like that of being as of great and eternal value. But just the normal, what they might think is mundane, everyday secular work, they, they have come to see this as practically worthless in regards to eternity. You know, I, I've sometimes observed this same thing in, in Christians who did not grow up in a Christian home. Uh, uh, they, they grew up lost, and at one time they had all these plans of a, a career and so forth, but then they get converted at some point, and all of a sudden the secular day-to-day stuff that they do just seems completely irrelevant, and they just lose heart. To give you an illustration, you know, several years ago in, in my country, uh, Tony Blair, who was then, he was the, uh, the prime minister, he had a motto, education, education, education. And his goal was to get virtually everyone in university, more people than ever in the university. Everyone was to become academics. And the result of this policy was that being an ap- academic became prized. But the more manual labor type jobs the non-academic, having a trade, became pretty much despised and worthless. And this created something which I I once heard, there's a name for this, I only heard recently, called the Rochdale Man. Rochdale's a place near where I live, although it's not limited to there. But it's where you, if you go into the town center in the daytime, you see see many men there in the 20-year-olds with... uh, black tracksuit bottoms on with a can of strong lager in one hand, can of strong beer, and a pram with a baby in, in the other hand while the girlfriend is out to work. Do you see what's happened there? You see, whereas in another generation, that person might have been very successful in a laboring job or some kind of, some kind of trade job, but it's been instilled with the mindset that if you don't do something academic, then it's worthless. But you see, that person couldn't do something academic. He's not made that way. But he could have done other things very, very well. Now, the reason why I use that as way, by way of illustration is because I see a very similar thing in, in the Christian church. You know, Many Christians have come to esteem what we deem as as the more spiritual positions of preaching, being a missionary, and everything else has become of very little 
or of no eternal value to them. But what I want to ask us tonight is, is that the scriptural position? Is there really no eternal value in in secular work and normal secular life in New Testament Christianity? You see, that's certainly not what the Apostle Paul thought. Uh, You see, in both Ephesians 6 there and also Colossians 3, uh, Paul said, I'll read this, uh, uh, this is from uh, Colossians 3, bond servants or slaves, obeying all things your uh, your masters, according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. Now, Paul there, of course, he's speaking of the first century practice of slaves and and masters. But we get principles from the New Testament, and there's one here on on Christians in the secular workplace. He says, be faithful, do your best. Don't pretend to be working when you're not really, as some do, he says. But most of all, he says, do your secular work for the Lord. Uh, You might be serving your boss and the company you work for. But much more than that, Paul said, you you are serving the Lord in what you do. And so, do you think of yourself in this way, Christian? That you're serving the Lord in your daily work? Because you should. That you're serving the Lord in your secular work and duties. I mean, we, we see this time and time again. If you go through... Genesis and look at the life of Joseph, I mean, he certainly thought of himself in this way. Whoever, whichever man he was serving, he was serving the Lord. And, and by the way, you know, this same principle it applies to Christian mothers serving in the home. Uh, you should think of yourself in that way as serving the Lord in what you do. You know, I'm not the biggest fan of Billy Graham. Well, I'm not really a fan of, of Billy Graham for, for some kind of a few things he says. But one thing I do like is his wife. Um, she had a, a sign, a story I heard. She has a sign above a, a, a cooker, a stove, you say, which says, uh, divine service offered up here twice daily. <laughs> you know, that's realizing um, she's cooking these meals, serving a family for the Lord. But the, the reason I, 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 in this, I mentioned this in Colossians, though, was in verse 24, Paul then says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. So there is certainly eternal value in doing your secular work and your secular duties, whatever they may be, because he says here you will receive a reward. He says here, knowing that, So do you know this, Christian? Are you conscious of this? That in your day-to-day life as a Christian in the workplace, as a mother, serving in the home, as someone at college, it applies to students. Are you conscious of knowing that you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ in what you do? 
knowing that it does have eternal value. Are you conscious of this? Because you should be. You know, you've probably noticed as, as you read through your New Testament pages, just going, I don't know how you read, but if you're going book by book, which I'm sure you have done at some point, we, get, we are given those principles about the Christian in, in the workplace, slaves, masters, and so forth. We are given them in Ephesians, and then you only have to go a few pages later and you get the same thing again in Colossians. You ever thought about why this is? Why did the Holy Spirit see fit to have this recorded for us twice there? I think because obviously this is something we're prone to forget. Uh, This is something we need reminding of. Because, you see, one thing I want to get across tonight is one thing, once you forget that what you're doing is of, of eternal value, then you're going to be thinking, what's the point? Something else here, he says, Colossians three twenty three. There is do it heartily, put put your heart into it. Uh, there is a difference, isn't there, in whatever you do in day to day. There is a difference between just going through the motions and putting your heart into something. I'm sure you all know the difference. But think about this: what causes a person to put their heart into what they do? It's when they deem it a worthy cause. It's when it grips them. You see, when something grips you, when when you deem it a worthy cause, you're no longer merely going through the motions, but but your whole personality, your whole being becomes involved. Well, here's the thing, you see. When you forget as a Christian that what you're doing is for the Lord Jesus and you're mistaken to think it's of no or very little eternal value, then you're going to start thinking either consciously or subconsciously. What's the point? You're going, to, you're going to lose heart. But surely, as Paul said here, knowing that, knowing that you're serving the Lord Jesus Christ in what you do, and it is of great value to him, and he is pleased with it, you can make a difference, then all of a sudden it does become a worthy cause as a Christian. It, these things do grip you. You know, you may have heard, I don't know if I've ever used this example before here, but if someone was to ask you, if, or if you ask someone, you know, what do you do for a living? What do you work as? And the person replied to you, I'm a cleaner. Well, you may think, well, I mean, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being a cleaner here, but you may think, well, that's not very much. But if they then continued in the same sentence, I'm a cleaner at Buckingham Palace for the Queen of England. Well, that puts a different perspective on it. (laughs) You know, I I mean, all of a sudden, I mean, I don't know about you, I'd I'd be telling people, you'll never guess who I met today. (laughs) You see, my point is that, you know, we're serving the King of Kings the Lord Jesus in what we do. When we realize this, whether it's in your your motherhood, your secular workplace, wherever, you see, when you realize you're serving the Lord Jesus, then that puts a whole different perspective upon it. And that, that, again, that is certainly the perspective. You cannot come away from looking at the life of Joseph without realizing in everything he does, whether he's serving 
uh, Potiphar there, when he, he's even serving in the jail or now serving as prime minister, he is serving the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is fully conscious of this. You see, many Christians, they have the false idea as if secular work is somehow unholy or less spiritual. But was our Lord Jesus any less spiritual when he spent the bulk of his adult life working as a carpenter in a secular job there? You see, this is another thing. You know, many Christians, they think of only the, the churchy type things as pleasing to God. They think if I, if I go to evangelism, pass out some tracts, and, you know, that's great. If I serve in the church in some way, and that's great too. But if someone can't do those things because, while well, they're a mother up to their neck in looking after the children running around, or, or maybe someone has to work long hours or whatever, they, they just feel beaten up as if they're not living their lives pleasing to God, but that's wrong. You see, again, ask that question. When our Lord Jesus spent the bulk of his adult life working as a carpenter in a secular job there, was he any less pleasing to God his Father? What does Scripture say? Everything he did pleased his Father. You know, I... I I love uh, Martin Luther's commentary on, on Psalm 104 there. Psalm 104 is a psalm of, of, uh, about being thankful to God for all his provisions there. And, and one of the verses he tells us is, God gives bread to strengthen a man's heart. And Luther points out, bread there is a gift from God. It's a gift. But then he points out many unbelievers even may have been used in making this bread. Even in, uh, it's a secular thing, in work, in the farming, in the making of the bread. And yet it's said to be a, a gift from God there in the secular work. I mean, you see people make this distinction today between the sacred and secular you know like in the old testament where you have the 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 priest doing all the holy things for the temple and that everyone else did the secular stuff but in the new covenant of course it's not like that everything we do as paul said whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, do all to the glory of God. We to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, as our spiritual uh, service there. In First Peter, we're all priests of God. Serve, you see, serving God in our daily lives. That's, that's our pre- priesthood. You see, sometimes people get the, impression, uh, the wrong idea. They, they think, well, we, we have, you know, our, our devotional times with the Lord, uh, and that's good. I hope you find some time. It's good to have some time alone in, in the word and, and pray. But here's the problem. It's when they, they think, that's the bit of the day I give to God. But then they think, right, I'm going off to work now. Or right, I'm looking after the family now as if, they're not, as if that part's not for God. But you see, when you go to work, when you look after the children, it should be seen as worship uh, and doing it for the Lord. You know, Terry mentioned 
uh, on the way up there, a quote by uh, Martin Luther that, you know, uh, a Christian shoemaker does not put, does not glorify God by putting crosses on shoes. He glorifies God by making good shoes. Let, let me tell you another thing. I think many Christians go off base on this, and it affects how we live. And that is, they, they take a scripture like, all our righteous deeds are like a filthy rag. And they, they wrongly conclude from that, that all their works as a believer are not pleasing to God. They think everything they do is a, a filthy rag. But, but you see, that's not what that scripture is saying though. Uh, what that verse is talking about is uh, when we do works in order to try and earn salvation and be accepted by God. Well, it's not going to be good enough. We need to be accepted by God in Jesus Christ. But after conversion, are our works still filthy rags? You know, what did our Lord say? Well done, good and faithful servant. Have you noticed this? You never see Paul write to the sinners in Corinth, the dirty little sinners in Corinth. No, he calls us saints, doesn't he? Holy ones. What did our Lord say on the Sermon on the Mount? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your filthy rags. No. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. You see, these are all opportunities to glorify God. You see, let me ask you this. When when he told us there, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven, how did he expect you to do this? Was our Lord asking everyone there, like the kind of radical Christian movement today, what claim was he asking everyone to become full-time preachers? Or full-time evangelists, give up their day jobs. That's not what he's talking about, is he? No, we are to let our light so shine before men in our daily lives, being salt and light to the people around us, Uh, not to withdraw ourselves so easily. But, you know, to be amongst people, uh, our lost family members, be amongst lost people in our community, and so forth. Uh, You know, there is a a very selfish attitude amongst Christians today where, you know, they have some family member who who does something that they do not like, some lost person, and so they just cut them off. That's not going to reach anyone, is it? You know, it's, uh, I mean, I hear people say this where I come from. They say, oh, they watch bad things on TV. And if, if I go to their house, I might get a glimpse of it. Or, or you know, um, they, they post bad things on their Facebook. And so I'm going to unfriend those ghastly people. That's not being salt and light to people, is it? That, that's being a monk. Withdrawing ourselves from society. That's being a Pharisee. You know, it's very easy to cut people off. Do you remember when Simon the Pharisee, when he said of Jesus, he said said to himself, if this man were a prophet, 
He would have known who, who and what sort of woman this was who was touching him, for she is a sinner. But how many Christians fall into this and think like that? You know, they, they, they look and they think, oh, you, you wouldn't have that friend on Facebook if you knew what sort of person they were. You wouldn't be around this person if you knew. What are you doing around them? But we're told we're not, we'd have to come completely out of the world, Paul said, to separate. You know, we're told to be around lost sinners. I mean, you had that problem in Corinth, didn't you? You had some who was, they had in the church, people who shouldn't have been in the church, they should be putting out, and they was leaving in there. But then they was thinking they was holy by withdrawing from sinners in normal life. But Paul said, no. We'd be around people, be, be salt and light. And that's certainly how we see this lived out in the New Testament. You see, let me ask you this. What, what does spirit-filled Christianity look like by and large in the New Testament? You see, when I read it, I mean, I see people going around, miracles and so forth, and I, I believe the Lord still does those things today. But for the most part, I do see the apostles and a few people doing those things. But spiritual, spirit-filled Christianity in the New Testament is being con content in your job, in your marriage, in parenting, even when things are not going your way. You see, that is when the world sits up and takes notice. That's when they ask for a reason for the hope that is within you. That's when the lost world sees reality in your life. You see, spirit-filled Christianity is when you can live in an ungodly world for the glory of God. You know, I, I mentioned at the, the start, many Christians complain about decisions made by politicians, but, but not only do they not get involved in politics themselves, and again, I, that may not be their gift, that's fine, but they, they disdain any Christian does. And they're always putting them down as some sort of compromiser. But Joseph here was a politician, a leader in an ungodly nation. Nehemiah was a, a cupbearer, and it doesn't sound much, but that was a very influential uh, position there in his day. He was a cupbearer. He had a very influential position with an ungodly king. Have you thought about this one? What about Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea? They were part of the same Jewish council that put Jesus to death. I mean, could you imagine Christians in their day? I could imagine anyone who heard about them have just wrote them straight off as being compromised for working in such a place. Why is Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus still in there? They're compromisers. They're obviously not even saved. And yet, what do we find when all the other disciples are fleeing at the crucifixion? It was Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea who stepped forward and took Jesus down from the cross and arranged his burial. You see, they would have seen, I'm sure, seen many things that they didn't like. And I'm sure it was a, a burden for them. But they didn't just withdraw. 
you know, they, they stayed in there. You know, when I was in Denmark recently, uh, a brother were, there was telling me he does some work with uh, uh, refugees um, coming from di- different places, all Muslims. But they've been told there they're not allowed to tell them anything about the gospel or anything uh, of Jesus Christ. Now you have thousands of Muslims there and that, that you have a lot of Christians wanting to help and feed them and counsel them, but they're not allowed to tell them anything. But do you see what's happened there? In the leadership in those places, the people who make those decisions, normally a handful of people, well, the Christians who would have been formerly in there, they've got offended over something because they don't agree on absolutely everything and they've withdrawn. They've said, I can't work with you anymore because of this. I want to look after my conscience. And so they, they all withdraw and say, so when those decisions are made about what they can say, there's no Christians there to speak up. And so I'm sure those Christians who withdrawn there, I don't know how they sleep at night. You know, but they probably sat there thinking, well, I, I didn't compromise. And yet because of what they did, there's thousands of Muslims who could have heard the gospel but are not hearing the gospel. Even 10,000 there because they, they just withdrew too quickly. Again, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they must have seen an awful lot that they didn't like but had to put up with. Again, it's so easy to withdraw. It's so easy to cut people off. We don't need the Holy Spirit for that. You know, we, we had a problem. Well, we, this is something that comes up periodically in our church where a Christian will come and moan because, you know, oh, the secular music playing on the, on the radio at work. Or they have to put up with unbelievers' conversation or whatever. And, and it may grieve them, but it's when they, you know, they, they'll even leave the jobs for it. But again, you, you don't have to have the power of the Holy Spirit to withdraw and, and live in a monastery. How, how are we going to be light, uh, salt and light with those people? You know, that, that verse... Love is patient. What do a lot of people do with that today who would cut people off so easily? I mentioned at the start, you know, so many Christians today, they complain about the state of our schools, and yet at the same time there are so few Christians willing to become teachers in there. Or yet often there are Christians who are teachers, but they won't work unless it's a Christian school. Because, you know, they, they don't want to get their hands dirty. You know, you know I, am, I am very grateful. And I, I tell this to our church. I am very grateful for, for Christians who work in schools, in, in whether it be in politics or other influential areas of daily life where, like your Joseph of Arimatheas and your Nicodemus, they may many times have to come across things they don't like. You know, you've heard of William Wilberforce, um, the, the British politician who ended slavery there. Well, he chose his battle wisely. You know, if he'd have, I'm sure he had to put up with a lot he did not like being in the secular world. But if he'd have gone after every issue and said, I'm not compromising on this, well, there'd have still been slavery. 
you know, I'm sure Nehemiah and I'm sure Joseph saw things he didn't like. But, it, but he was willing to put up with, uh, to, to be an influence. You know, you, you may have not the same as this, but something similar. You know, back in, in England, and you can apply this in your own way, but the primary schools, I think you call them elementary, between like five and 11, they, have, they start the day with some sort of assembly. Um, where all the school, all the children come together, they all sit down and they get a hymn and the teacher will give some sort of, they'll say like the Lord's Prayer. It's supposed to be like some kind of devotional and or some sort of Christian teaching or possibly one of Aesop's fables or something like that. But typically, no one wants to do it. They have to do it. They have to have this little Christian service because it's just a law. But no one wants to do it. But this is my point. If you have a Christian in there, what a great opportunity. Five days a week to minister to those children. Maybe he has to to put up with other things he doesn't like. And I'm sure he does in a secular school. But, But he withdraws because of the few things he doesn't like and then loses that great opportunity. Now, yours may be completely different, but I'm sure there are things similar examples and you you get the point i mean we get many opportunities to reach people through daily lives you have paul working there as a a tent maker he he seemed in which he was reaching priscilla and aquila you know many examples we get of of reaching of being around people in, in daily lives and being salt and light with them not withdrawing Uh, but then you know, this is one thing we get, uh, people coming to our church, again, just from daily lives. We've had quite a few in, in the neighborhood and just being around them and spending, t- spending time with them, finally, finding lonely people. You know, I, I was, I can't remember who I was talking to before, but uh, one, one lady just a couple of doors away, uh, she was uh, an old widow um just totally lonely and um and she smoked like a chimney uh, and um but anyway our, our Dylan would go around and mow the lawn for her and um and we'd spend a little time with her and then she'd come to the church and and she just loved it because she was totally lonely and now initially she was only coming to be around people and and she would come week after week and, and it got to over a year and you're thinking will this person ever get saved or or is she just going to come as like a social club but then then one day she did you know and you see she was listening there and we've had others like that but I, I give that as an example you know because it's not always a case of you give someone the go- they, they see the, the gospel in your lives they see a hope and, and people are if God's drawing them they're going to be drawn to that too and it's they're just a, but when we withdraw, we, we lose those opportunities. You know, I encourage our brethren to go to little baby groups and things like that with those with babies, of course, just to be, <laughs> otherwise you'd look pretty weird. <laughs> oh, they'd come and arrest you. But, um, 
but I, I encourage them to, to go and be around others and just make friendships there. And it's not going to, and this is, we've seen this in Switzerland too, um, where, you know, they've took this on board and they're doing it and the Lord's opening up opportunities there uh, to, to, to minister uh, to, to others. And, it, and it's not every person. You know, you go to those groups, it's not as if you, uh, they all fall down and <laughs> ask, what must I do to be saved? But normally the Lord will open up some specific people there, which we should be praying for, for those opportunities and, and reaching them. So, so that's what I, I wanted to get across tonight. You know, be encouraged in your normal daily lives to do it for the Lord. And these are ways in which we serve him. You know, it's a lot easier to go out on the street and give someone a track and preach the gospel. It's a lot easier to do that than actually live the gospel because uh, you have to be consistent there. You know, but, but even that, you know, when they see your failings and, and you go and ask forgiveness, that kind of shocks people. And it's still a, a, a witness there. They see, so let's pray. Our Father, we just thank you that we do serve the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Help us to be faithful to you. Help us in our daily lives to live for you, for your glory, to do whether we eat or drink or do whatever we do to the glory of God. I pray, Lord, that verse, love is patient, would be a reality in our lives, to be salt and light around people, not easily offended. Lord, we are so glad that you didn't, wasn't easily offended by us and cut us off. And I pray, Lord, and you must have been, what we did to you being holy must have been so much more offensive than anyone can ever be to us. And yet you bore with us and you died for us. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us in reaching others Help us to be holy in an unholy world. To be salt and light, to reach people for you. To be praying for opportunities. And we pray that you would open them. In Jesus' name, amen.